Hello, welcome to my podcast. Paper Sun, Chinese American Citizen. This is episode two. episode, I started this podcast series. I explained my purpose to this series and provided a background to this story. Chinese migration to America in meaningful numbers started in the 1850s. At the beginning, entry into America was relatively uncomplicated and unrestricted. Aliens literally walked into the United States with no documentation. The United States generally welcomed aliens. She needed workers and people to settle the frontiers. It was the dawn of America's Industrial Revolution and laborers, particularly low-waged workers, were in high demand. In 1849, news of a gold strike at Sutter's Mill, California, quickly traveled to China. At that moment, maybe no more than 50 Chinese lived in the United States. Within a year after the gold strike, 325 Chinese came to California. The Chinese called California Jinxian, or Gold Mountain. For the Chinese, gold symbolized power. They were willing to risk all to come to America for it. Despite the rumors, many Chinese were told that Americans were blue-eyed barbarians with red hair and eight children. They came anyway. Most were young males from poor peasant families. Most came from the Canton, China area. Some Chinese women came too, but They were mostly as wives, servants, or prostitutes. In 1849, maybe less than 400 Chinese entered America. By 1853, one half of San Francisco residents were foreigners. And more Chinese came. Then it exploded. 2,700 arrived in 1851. Over 20,000 arrived in 1852. A crop failure that year in China assured even more would come. 
The Chinese aliens, or celestials, as they were referred to by the San Francisco press, arrived in vessels owned by American and British companies. The profits to these companies was huge. The the Pacific Mail Steamship Company was established in 1848. It was formed originally to carry mail from Central America and Asia to California. Later, it carried Asian immigrants to America. The typical route for the steamships began at southern China through the Formosa Straits and then east over the Pacific Ocean. The journey took two months and cost the enormous sum then of 30 to $50. Chinese would beg or borrow to raise the necessary funds for the trip. The vessels were crowded and diseases were rife, the conditions hazardous and difficult. The Chinese would smoke opium, gamble, and sleep to pass the time. As more Chinese came to America, transport conditions worsened. They arrived at San Francisco wearing their typical hair cues and loose-fitting clothing. At first, they entered San Francisco without any restrictions and quickly were exploited by dealers of all sorts. Some of them stayed in San Francisco. Most went to the mining sites. Very soon, over 85% of the Chinese in California were engaged in mining or its supportive ventures. As I commented before, their physical appearance attracted attention. The Manchu hairstyle, as well as the clothing, set them apart from the other non-Chinese miners. Their work habits also attracted attention. They generally worked hard, were clean and peaceful. Resentment eventually came. Non-Chinese miners began to resent the Chinese miners. The notion began and grew that California gold should only belong to Americans. The state of California got that and acted quickly. Legislation was proposed to exclude migrant miners. Then legislation was passed to impose taxes on Chinese coolies, which are sort of a of an indentured servant, to stem, quote, the Asiatic immigration, end of quote. In 1852, the state of California created the Foreign Miners License Act. It imposed a $3 monthly fee on foreign miners, but the law was meant to target the Chinese. The taxes collected went to California hospitals. The Chinese miners paid over one half of these taxes, but were prohibited from using the hospitals. And things got even worse. 
1854, the California Supreme, Supreme Court in People v. Hall held that just like black Americans and Native Americans, Chinese were barred from testifying in court. Violent acts against Chinese was inescapable. By the time the gold rush ended, Chinese miners had managed to remove millions of dollars of gold and sent it out of America. In the 1850s, Chinatown and its restaurants had become popular with the locals and the tourists. Chinese prosperity could be seen. As prosperity increased, so did resentment toward the Chinese. In 1837, the United States Supreme Court in City of New York et al. versus Milne, 36 U.S. 102, ruled that a New York law requiring arriving ships to provide passenger manifests was constitutional. The court opined the law was within New York's police powers. But 12 years later, the Supreme Court chipped away, began to chip away at Milne. The passenger cases, also known as Smith versus Turner, 48 U.S. 283, decided in 1849, in a narrow five to four decision, struck down New York and Massachusetts laws that imposed head taxes on arriving aliens. The court struck down the two cases as unconstitutional. The decision stands out for several reasons. While the majority justices agreed the two states, two states' laws were unconstitutional, the justices could not agree on the source of the power for federal control over immigration. The justices could not agree if the federal government's power came from the Commerce Clause or the Uniform Taxation Clause or the Naturalization Clause or the Import and Migration Clause or that that power over immigration was one of those inherent sovereign controls that a nation possessed. Nor could the majority court decide whether federal power over immigration was exclusive or should be shared with the states. The decision rambles on for almost 300 pages and demonstrates America's uncertain position on the issue of immigration. As a consequence of the sprawling five separate majority opinion decision, the passenger cases cannot be relied upon for clear future legal precedent. Trying not to get too far ahead of myself, it is important to jump ahead real quick to 1875. In Henderson versus New York, 92 U.S. 259, decided in the year 1875, the United States Supreme Court 
finally settled on the Foreign Commerce Clause in Article I of the United States Constitution as the source for exclusive federal government jurisdiction over immigration. That clause, by the way, is part of the Interstate Commerce Clause. The Henderson decision was unanimous. Its companion case, Chai Nung versus Freeman, 92 U.S. 276, decided in 1875 as well, the court struck down other states' laws that required vessels post bond for foreign passengers. It was not until the Chinese began to arrive in large numbers that Congress took notice. In 1862, Congress prohibited the transport of Chinese coolies. The coolie issue actually began in Cuba. About 1840, as the importation and use of African slaves drew more attention and criticism, Plantation owners in Cuba started importing Chinese indentured services, indentured servants or coolies to supplement their African slaves. Some Americans started viewing coolies as the same as the slavery trade, and they pushed for the federal government to do something about it. This was the backdrop for Congress's 1862 law regulating Chinese coolies. And here is where we start to see the emergence of divergent views toward Chinese aliens. These divergent views will come more in focus and refine themselves within the next 20 years. For now, the views were split between the abolitionist position that coolies were no different than slaves and should be stopped, and the other view that the coolies were in competition for jobs that free whites may have wanted. The argument was that coolies held wages down and made it difficult to make a livable wage. In addition, perceptions emerged that the Chinese would never assimilate into American culture. That perception of assimilation was not shared about European immigrants. As more Chinese poured into the United States, some Chinese began to prosper. That also drove tensions between Chinese and Americans. By 1860, many Americans demanded more limits and regulation of Chinese immigration. In 1864, Congress authorized the United States president to appoint an immigration commissioner under the Secretary of State. That was the federal government's real first effort to centralize control over immigration. As the American West expanded, it became apparent a quicker, safer, and cheaper mode of East-West connection and travel was needed. In 1862, Congress, in the middle of the American Civil War, passed the Pacific Railroad Act. Signed by President Abraham Lincoln, it approved the building of a railroad across the western United States and authorized the issuance of bonds to pay for it. 
Two companies were awarded the contract to build the railroad. The Central Pacific Railroad Corporation received the contract to lay tracks eastward from Sacramento, California. Union Pacific Railroad received the contract to lay tracks westward from Omaha, Nebraska. Central Pacific's task would be more difficult as it would lay track on, over, under, and around steep mountains. But both companies needed enormous numbers of laborers. The Central Pacific advertised for workers. They were offering high wages, and they needed as many as 5,000 laborers, but only 800 applied. At one point, the Central Pacific reached out to the United States War Department, requesting Confederate war prisoners be provided. The Civil War, however, ended before that request was fulfilled. The Central Pacific then sought Chinese laborers directly in China. The railroad arranged for cheaper fares with the steamship, with the steamship companies from China. And the Chinese responded, coming in sufficient numbers. It did not take long for the railroad to notice the Chinese laborers' work ethic. The Chinese also showed ingenuity in building through the difficult mountain terrain. The Chinese were the only laborers willing to work with dynamite that was necessary for working through the difficult terrain. At its peak, the Central Pacific employed more than 10,000 Chinese men to the point they preferred Chinese workers over other workers. When the white laborers threatened to strike for higher wages, the railroad would hire more Chinese, playing one against the other. The strike threats went away after the white workers would only be replaced with Chinese workers. In May of 1869, the two railroads met at Promontory Point, Utah, the Central Pacific laid 690 miles of track. The Union Pacific laid 1,086 miles of track. The human toll was large. An average of three laborers died for every two miles of track laid. Over 2,000 Chinese had perished. To put a fitting and... I suppose, to this chapter in our story, in the familiar, iconic photograph of the final spike being driven into the track and joining the two railroads, the Chinese were excluded from the event and the photograph. To add insult to injury, the final act of appreciation to the Chinese, the railroad fired them on the spot. Then the railroad reneged on its promise to the Chinese workers to return them to California. The, the workers were left to themselves.
A final fact. Before the Intercontinental Railroad was built, it took over four months to cross the United States. After the completion of the railroad, it took six days. Thank you for listening.